start. Any prayers for tonight? Any prayers? you speak up, please? So I have a friend whose son right. diagnosed with Crohn's disease after Christmas. He did, he's in college, freshman. Wow. He mentioned to his parents he was having stomach pain, which apparently started in October until he got home at Christmas. And he actually lives in the same town. <laughs> oh, wow. Kids. Um, and then he got an abscess, and he's had all sorts of issues. And so he's supposed to have surgery tomorrow to hopefully take out part of the disease stuff and get rid of God. the abscess. So just prayer for successful surgery. What's his name? Um, his name is uh, Vance. Randy? Vance. 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 And he's really young. Yeah, gosh. Um, I hope I... Gosh, Doc, can you get the pencil just to help me here? Sorry. Alexis, you probably know more about her than. I mean, I know who she is. She would sing at church sometimes at 5 o'clock. What's her name, Mary? Cassie. Cassie? Yeah. Cassie, and she passed away. And so, Gosh. Uh, just really, underneath the thing? It was a terrible shock. I may have yeah. Her parents were in the airplane on their way to meet the kids who were going on spring break when it happened. So I'm going to ask for prayers too. Um, Vance, Cassie, and Doc, I'm okay. Let's let's start. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. No, not here. Um, <laughs> before we do, um, God, this is. I can count on one hand. This, wait, this is before the prayer. Sorry, this is a preface. So. I can count on one hand the men I can say I genuinely love, I mean, deeply love. And all of them are academics. They've been, um, their friendship has meant so much to me over the course of my life. David Ramsey was the head of the art department at one college. John Meehan was the president of Magdalen for a while before I got there. Um, Gene Kurtzinger was a colleague at UD. Um, Louise Cowan was um, great mentor, my, my uh, dissertation advisor, but the three men, and I'm missing somebody. Um, one of the joys of my life in going to Mass, Suzanne and I try to go every during the week. Um, Tuesday and Wednesdays didn't have morning Masses, so we didn't go, but Monday, Thursday, Friday, and then Saturday for weekend Mass. Every day, every morning, we'd go, we'd, we would go faithfully to Mass. And there was a guy who always sat at the end of the same pew. And if you know me, you know how playful I can be. And people know me that way. I very often go around church and speak to people, you know, when people are doing prayers. Um, when I 
early in, or before the conversion, actually, when I took my first job at a, at a Catholic college in California, College in Ordain, the sister who was really responsible for my being hired there was one of the most holy women I've ever known in my life. Just remarkable woman. The first time I heard her do a reading, my response was, nothing had ever happened to me like that before. My response was, she's a daughter of God. I'd never said that in my life. Something of the spirit that she conveyed during her readings. And at mass, she would always go around the, the chapel saying hello to people. Some people were in prayer. And she, she just went around and she, she left me with a feeling the chapel is home. You know, it, it's not just for prayer, although it's a place for prayer, it's a place to be with Christ. So I've carried that. I think people know me that way at our, at our parish. This man who sat at the other end of our, and I would kibitz, you know, before mastering, and we would walk out together almost daily. Um, he, he had the same sense of humor. He's the only non- academician um, with whom I felt a kinship because there, because I have such a commitment to the ordinary man. That is just a big part of my life. I've never been at home in my profession, ever, ever. Um, we would always have something to say. He loved Benedict, so did I. I gave him a piece to read. We would talk about Benedict. He, um, he, he trained horses for a profession. So he, he had what we were talking about, although I never had this conversation with him. He trained horses, so in my, my world, he had to deal with the animal in our human nature. If you train horses and you have kids, I don't, I, I would, it's always a question how, you know, how that fit in his life, I don't know, but a really, really good man. Um, he would get on me at times. I've been writing and pressing to get writing out to send it to publishers, and there was a period when I, because it takes me a long time to write. So he'd go out and he would say to me every morning, so how's the writing coming along? When are you going to finish? <laughs> Isn't it about time you got going? Which is exactly, if you know me, that's exactly the same thing I would say. At, at one point, I, with his daughter, who has a difficult, a hard speech problem, and I would work with her, try to talk with her, but one morning we were all together walking out to the cars, and his daughter was with me, and, and um, so I said to him again, so what do you do for a living? To train horses. And I said, so when are you going to grow up? It just, I mean, it's that, and his response was, never. <laughs> um, Saturday morning, no problems, no health problems. Saturday morning, we learned he died. Out of nowhere. Um, his name's Ralph Rampolini. So um, pray for him, please. It's my custom when people... It's my custom when people die. It's been that way for a long time to go up to him and express my sorrow and say, you know me, make a large, part, make a large place for sorrow in life. You're losing somebody. And I'll always say, but make some place for a joy. Because you know there. Hold both of those things together. I could say that easily until now. <laughs> Sorry, because it makes me realize um, how some losses are greater than others and how much you feel the loss. Anyway, I'm sorry for, it's Vance and Cassie. 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 Cassie
Yeah. So, um, special prayer. Help us to take seriously your reminder to us all, memento mori, remember death. We are supposed to hold on to a death daily as a reminder that we shouldn't take anything for granted. Because out of nowhere, we lose people. We lose the loved ones. And so strengthen all of us in that faith, please, to, um, to, to hold on to a joy. It's one of the great truths we learn from Boethius. There's no bad fortune, none in our world. God is always at work um, taking whatever bad goes on and turning it to good. So you are a good God. Um, receive Casey um, into your kingdom. Wash away her sins. Let our prayers help wash them away. We don't know her. Um, lots of people do. And watch out for that young man, Vance. Um, protect him. Surround him with your protection. He's young. Keep him well. Whenever any of us face these crises, help us always um, to see them as some gift from you, some way of growing in our faith. I ask for the same um, blessings for Ralph. Um, good, good man. Um, receive him into your kingdom. Let him know the joy that he has longed to experience his whole life. That's why he goes to church. Receive him into your kingdom. Bless him. Let him know our, um, our joy in him, our gratitude. Ralph, special prayer for me. Um, pray for us, please. <laughs> and remember when you, this is for me. Remember when you're working with those horses in heaven, they all carry chariots of fire. You got a big task ahead of you, my friend. So take some care. Um, we offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Oops. You just wanted another glasses? Yeah. Sorry. Okay, let's let's start. Last week, we did Gerard Manley, Gerard Manley Hopkins' God's Grandeur because I, I knew that we were heading into rough waters with Melville. We're going to see some really dark things. Um, I'm going to do Spring today. It, it's the other poem that you should have in that sheet. Um, those of you who have your poetry packets, you'll find it. If not, just listen because um, I wrote Ellie today, but I think all the staff people were closed. She's on, she's on vacation. Yeah, so we don't have all the printouts. So um, I'll ask her to have some notes for today, the outlines for today, handy. But I sent you attachments, so you should be able to print them when you get home. I think the notes are really important, particularly for Moby Dick, because it's a very complex book, okay? 
But I want to do two things tonight. I want to read another of Tate's or um, Hopkins' poems to reinforce um, the goodness of creation. And then I'm going to reread Tate's Cross. It's a poem I've read a couple of times now because he does something in that poem close to what Melville is doing in um, um, Moby Dick. And I think it's the sort of thing that's very subtle and I think most people would miss and I do not want to miss it. So I'm going to read Tate's poem again. If you don't have it, just listen because you'll, you'll enjoy it, I hope, um, and hold on to it. You, you can find the poems again and read them when you get home. I sent, I sent them, I didn't send Tate's, but I sent the Hopkins poems too, so. Um, Jeremy Hopkins, Spring. Remember God's grandeur gave us this image of, of men trotting on the earth, trotting and trotting and trotting and beating it down the way men exploit nature. But um, the, the Holy Spirit brooded over the earth, the west. And his last lines were, O morning at the brown brink eastward springs, that every day the sun rises. Every day there's a renewal. After every winter there's a spring. Nature renews itself, even in the face of the awful things that we do with it. So he ends God's grandeur, O morning at the brown brink eastward springs. Because the Holy Ghost over the bent world broods with warm breast and with awe bright wings. It's a celebration and expression of his love for the Holy Spirit and the way the Holy Spirit renews. This is spring, okay? Nothing is so beautiful as spring when weeds in wheels shoot long and lovely and lush. Thrush's eggs look little low heavens and thrush through the echoing timber does so rinse and ring the ear it strikes like lightnings to hear him sing. The glassy pear tree leaves and blooms, they brush the descending blue. That blue is all in a rush with richness. The racing lambs, too, have the fair their flame. It's like Chaucer's spring in the preface. Spring is renewing, things are coming back to life. What is all this juice and all this joy? A strain of the earth's sweet being in the beginning in Eden's garden. Have, get, before it cloy, before it cloud, Christ, Lord, and sour with sinning, innocent mind and mayday in girl and boy, most homage child, Christ, thy choice and worthy the winning. It was his life that brought everything, his life and death that brought everything back to life so that we could um, experience, re-experience the renewal of things, okay? So spring is a reminder of the um, incarnation and the resurrection, that things come back to life. And by the way, just along those lines, um, we're starting to see the birds come back in our yard. I mean, I'm, I'm sure you're noticing the birds are coming back. They know before the weatherman that spring is here. Yeah? Humans think we're so smart. <laughs> okay, here. This is going to be heavy, and next week I sent um, two of um, Hopkins' dark poems. Read them, I'll read them next week because we're heading into dark waters and I just, I want to match 
um, those waters if I can. They're online, Doc. They were. Alan Tate, the cross. <clears throat> Remember what I said, what Tate is saying in this poem, because it's a very, very difficult poem. It's very obscure. It's not, it's not an easy poem to read. I a lot of people don't understand it. It's just a difficult poem. Um, he's speaking as if he's one of the damned, that he knows damnation firsthand. So he's offering the poem as if from that perspective and yet detached enough to describe it, okay? So there's a personal quality to it as well as a detachment. There is a place that some men know, I cannot see the whole of it, nor how I came there. Long ago, flame burst out of a secret pit, crushing the world with such a light, the day sky fell to moonless black. The kingly sun to hateful night for those once seen turning back. They rejected, they turned away. For love so hates mortality, which is the providence of life, she will not let it blessed be, but curses it with mortal strife. Until beside the blinding rood, the tree, the cross, within that world destroying pit, like young wolves that have tasted blood of death and taste no more of it. Once some men face mortality experience, they want nothing to do with it, they turn away. It's too difficult. Um, and they're like wolves that have tasted blood, paradoxically. Of death men taste no more of it. So blind in so severe a place, all life before in the black grave, the last alternatives they face of life without the life to save, being from all salvation weaned, they want nothing to do with it. A stag charged both at heel and head, who would come back is turned a fiend, instructed by the fiery dead. We've done this poem a couple of times, and I only just want to make this comment. From Tate's rendering of it, it's a little bit like Dante's Inferno, but in some ways it's much darker, because in Dante's Inferno, you remember from our reading of it, the souls in hell still keep their humanity. But something of their humanity is given over something fiendish. They're in hell. They're not who they were as humans, even though they're carrying on their lives the way they did on earth. But there's something fiendish. And here's the point I want to make, because I think we're going to approach something like this in Melville. If there's something divine in us as humans, if God, if we're made in his image, and there's something transcendent in each one of us. We have an immortal soul. To turn away from Christ, it, if any of us turns away from Christ and his divinity, now think about that, the rejection of his divinity, that's a fiendish satanic thing to do. I mean, Satan's the prototype, right? He's the prototype of that. If any of us turns from Christ and denies that, at the expense of our own transcendent character, our own divinity, do we take on something fiendish ourselves in the condition of hell? Okay? I hope, that, I, hope I said that starkly enough. Is that clear? If we refuse Christ and his divinity, in that refusal, does that part of it that's divine become fiendish by that gesture? So, 
we can, I mean, you know, traditionally in catechism, we, I mean, when kids are younger, I think, I, it wasn't a part of my life when I was, but I think the conventional approach is when kids grow up and they learn about hell, they picture human beings suffering in fire. I'm suggesting, Tate's suggesting, it's far worse than that. Even if there's fire, imagine what happens to something transcendent in us in that rejection, what it does to a human being, okay? So that's Tate's poem. So hold on to Hopkins Spring <laughs> and Tate's The Cross, okay? If you can do that. Before we start, because I want to I wanna go now to um, Moby Dick, any thoughts or comments on those poems? Mary, yeah. You said rejecting the divine, you know, is, could be a fiendish thing. But aren't there many religious groups that do reject the divine? Yep. Yes. My only answer to you is yes. <laughs> Whatever that means. I don't want to go there tonight because it's a complicated thing. And by the way, to reinforce that, in John's letter, his first letter, I think it's passage four, John, the first letter of John, John makes it clear that anybody who denies, this is stunning if you think, particularly when you think about religious groups, um, anybody who rejects the divinity of Christ belongs to the Antichrist. It's a rejection of Christ. He's quite explicit. I don't think we get explicit pictures of it. We just had one with Tate, but but I want to I want to offer that um, because one of the things that we're going to see you've already heard me speak to it is if you if you deny the sacraments, which was one of the major um, uh, movements um, of the Protestant Reformation against the Catholic Church. Once you deny the sacraments, the danger is that your religion can turn into a moral code of respectability. We've seen that again and again. We're going to see it. We're going to see it in Faulkner. We're seeing it in Melville. The whole city world that he explores in the beginning, call me Ishmael and Mrs. Hussey, um, Coffin, Bildad Peleg, Mapple, um, all of them are, are a part of that um, life that Melville is satirizing. It's taken by respectability. Mapple blows it apart, but what he does is come at it from the other, ex other extreme because at the end of his sermon, he'll, he'll, go, he'll give all the woes that Christ gave. Woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. And they don't say, delight, 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 delight. And all the delights at the end of the last one is kill and burn. I mean, it's, a, um, it's just a vindictive, um, um, what would you call it, sort of hellish, condemnation of people. Um, so Melville opens up that whole um, world of respect, a product respectability that's in decline in the 19th century. That's what the story's about. And it's only when we go to see that we finally see what the underlying causes are. They're going to be embodied in um, Ahab and the struggles that he has. And you know that they're all going to involve God. Different, a, a different, very different understanding of God. So that's our work, but any questions before we start on Moby Dick? Yeah, yeah. In the cross, there's a line at the end I don't quite understand. A stag charged both at heel and head. I'm trying to get that, understand that image, what he's saying. 
I mean, normally a stag is sort of a noble beast and, you know, yeah. fairy tale myth legend. So is it referring to this, the fiends, the souls in hell here? Or, like, they were the wolves. But where is the stag? And what does it mean to be charged both at heel and head? Yeah. I'm not going to answer that. <laughs> I'm going to write an email because I really want to get to them up. Because you know that I'm, I'm reluctant to go into lyrics because... No, you stop. You behave. Um, let me, let me, I'll answer, I'll write a note to everybody in an email okay. in, in an effort to answer just to, um, but I would be glad if all of you struggled with it a little bit. It's a very difficult poem, really difficult. Um, but um, I'll, I'll write a note, okay? I want to be careful right now because we have got so much to do. Um, Can we let Melissa in, please? Sorry? Chuck. Thank you, Chuck. Thanks. I hope that does it. Hi, Melissa. Welcome. If you can bring a picture in here, it'd be good to see you. Um, boy, getting worse and worse. God. Oops. Okay, let's let's go quickly. Overview. Oh, here. I want, to add, I want to put some questions to you. If you've looked at the notes, you'll know them, but if you don't. Here's some questions that I'd like everybody to keep in mind as we go through the readings today, because we're going to focus pretty closely on the readings. What do we make of the open-ended character of Moby Dick? The fact that it's not limited to the narrator's point of view. Some critics faulted for this reason. What does it say about Melville as a writer, his way of dealing with problems of knowledge, how and what we know. Indirectly, Melville's technical or narrative approach is integral to one of the work's major themes, the problem of reading, how we read. If that's not immediately clear to you guys, think about this. For the greater part of the opening of Moby Dick, we get the narrative from Ishmael's point of view, right? He's not, he's not giving us something that he has no access to, right? After the quarter dick, we go into Ahab's cabin and we get Ahab's um, conscious reflections. And we get a number of them. How did he do that? Because he doesn't have access to that. Is that clear? This has got to be absolutely clear. Absolutely clear. You will never find, you will never find that in Joseph Conrad. Never. Because it was, an epistle, it was an epistemological problem, a huge one at the turn of the century. How we know things. If you read Charles Dickens, you know that Dickens is an omniscient narrator. He can go in and out of characters at will. And most moderns say, are you kidding? Nobody's omniscient. We don't have that power. So they all tended to write stories in which the narrator was held accountable for what he knew. Conrad was a master at it. If you read Conrad, you know we only get a story from a person, and very often we only get pieces of it from persons that he's talked with. So Conrad's covering himself everywhere. Is that clear? That's how fastidious Conrad was because he, he believed no knowledge come to us except a knowledge that's very personal. We can't just make up things omnisciently. We're not God. Is that clear? 
Melville starts to give us episodes in which um, Ishmael could not have known what was going on, but he treats it as if he did. And you know that there are scenes like the after the quarter the quarterdeck um, scene where all the sailors carry on. They're you know they're getting half drunk, and it's presented as a drama. It's a dramatic mode. They're presented as speaking in their own characters as if we're watching a stage play. It's not being narrated. Are you following me? So how does Mel? So why? By the way, Melville didn't have to account for it because that was not an issue for him. It became a huge issue gradually for moderns. But I want to say this on his behalf. Very often we know things um, without having to have, have without having to have them told to us through another person. And sometimes we can surmise and sometimes we can imagine what goes on in the other person. We may be wrong but in defense of it. But very often we're wrong when we get something face to face and think we understand it all. Somebody tells us a story, we get a picture of a person and we think we know it. And we still may have it wrong. I think you all know that. Is everybody following? Mel Melville's got a story to tell. Ishmael's the narrator. But very often we're in and out of scenes where he would have had no access to what goes on. At the end of the story, at, towards the end of the novel, he's going to drop out altogether. So how does he do this? The reason I'm putting this up to you is because, remember, one of the things I've been saying all along is that we don't read well. The more educated we are, the more we think we read well. But we don't. The writers that we've been reading are teaching us to be better readers. To acknowledge that very often we don't understand what we think we do, we make these criticisms and judgments and often they're wrong, um, we see that we don't always see things as clearly as we think we do. Certainly things concerning God. The only one who really sees all things is God. Okay. The quarterdeck is the turning point of the entire novel. It's in that chapter that Ish or Ahab enlists his crew. From that moment on, the action turns. Ishmael goes on board as an innocent. He's like most of us when we're 18 and 19, doing what we do without realizing how dumb we are. He goes on board not thinking anything. He goes on board and suddenly he's enlisted in this cause to take vengeance on this whale. This? Yeah, it's on. Yeah, I hope it is. Um, yeah. Is everybody following? This, this moment, on this moment, in that scene, the novel turns, turns on a hinge. Because from that point on, he enlists everybody in his cause for vengeance. Okay? That's going to um, implicate everybody in his quest. How does he do that? Where does he get his power? I've, you, I've already given it away, so you already know. The, the book ends with that ship going down. Everybody. Doc, do you want to offer your thoughts when you were reading last week when we could, what happened at the dinner table and what your sentiments were today about Starbucks? What your response was? My response reading the book is to feel bad for everybody who died. Only Ishmael survived. Um, I like Starbucks. He's not a saint, but I like him. Um, I even like Stubb. Um, 
certainly Queequeg. Yeah. yeah. I was going to say I like Queequeg. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, it's really important to. I mean, it's really important that has to be said. They are likable characters. Um, Starbuck is a very moral man. Queequeg may be a barbarian, but by nature he's good. He's thoughtful. He's kind. Hmm? He's very likable. Yeah. Yeah. He's sensitive. Um, with with no incentive to do something. Remember, after that first night, he when they get up in the morning, he opens up his purse and divides his money with yeah. freely, gives his money up. Um, so, where does Ahab get this power? Um, shortly after the quarter deck um, episode. We're going to look at these episodes closely. I really want to get into the text tonight. Ishmael has that meditation on superstition, the whiteness of the whale. Anybody have a comment on why superstition is such an important thing at this point in the story? He devotes a whole chapter to it. We get some sense in the, in the chapter called Moby Dick, where it describes the whale and the sort of mystical power it um, people attached to him. And then in the following one, on the whiteness of the whale, he talks about whiteness as this strange negative, like, it, like it's an image of privation or evil, and that people have these superstitious feelings about it. That Remember there's this description of um, a whale being sighted, I can't remember the location now, in Greenland, and then the next day it was reported they ended up dead with harpoons all the way through him in um, um, Cape Town you know, South Africa, and um, there's no way he could have done that except the assumption is there are these underground tunnels between continents that, that fish can pass through, so, or the horse who gets a scent of something that reminds him of a buffalo that was ages before or, and far away, that we seem to have this collective memory, a collective memory that takes us back to Eden that there's something strange and mystical about the world and superstitious people um, try to make sense of it by making connections, saying this is connected to this. When it's a superstition, you can't prove it. Why does he, why does he take time to give a whole chapter to superstition? Superstition is powerful. Yeah. So that itself, because that brings everybody into a certain spot or a certain thought and then whether or not somebody's going to dismiss it or not. So it's there's a lot of strength. Yeah. People it's, on ships very superstitious. Athletes, modern athletes. I remember when I was a kid playing basketball and I'm sure it's true today. I, I would I, every game day I would eat a Snickers. <laughs> and I know that there are people, golfers, basketball players, football, they carry something in their pocket. Or they'll wear, yeah, they'll wear a charm, necklace, they, and they will not play a game without those things. It is. Sorry? Don't wash their underwear as long as they're winning. <laughs> <laughs> you, you can imagine what a problem that is for wives. Um, like on the Memphis Bell, remember he had a charm and the one guy took it from him? And he, the one the guy on the, on the plane from it is. Out. It is also related to uh, pretty predestination because if something happens you know what the result of seeing something or you know yep. you're waiting for it to happen there's, a, there's always an implied sorry go ahead omens well I was thinking about 
So with predestination, you feel like you don't have free will or your free will doesn't matter. But then there's the um, opposing view of chance, which he explores also a little bit later. Mm -hmm. yep. And so through the whole thing, like the balance, yeah, between the natural man or the Protestant man and or the religious man. In superstition, the underlying principle at issue here is, I think, that it leaves man with a sense of a magical power over something. That if this, then this. So if you wear your charm or... So behind it is a desire for power, control over your life. So at bottom, it's, it's religious, even though it doesn't seem that way. Deeply religious. Now, I just want to touch on this tonight because it's going to get really dark if we get there tonight. It's going to get very, very dark. But there's that chapter on superstition. Um, what do we take away from the sunset dusk episode shortly after? Remember um, that um, for literature, <laughs> you remember when we watched the movie? Almost every time we've had a movie together, I've used the word diegesis. Can anybody remember? Somebody better remember here. <laughs> Connie won't look at me right now. <laughs> Come on, what is diegesis? Remember in Plato, there were two forms of representing, mimetically representing the human experience. One was called mimesis, which means to imitate something, and the other was called diegesis. In diegesis, you're speaking in your own voice. It's personal. In mimesis, you're representing somebody else, speaking in his voice. So when Homer tells the story about Achilles, that's a mimetic act. He's, he's imitating Achilles, or representing Achilles, speaking in his own voice. Drama is pure mimesis. Characters are speaking in their own voice. There's nobody narrating. And this is really essential, because we've gone over this a lot. Is everybody clear? In Mimesis, you speak in your own voice. Every narrative, or I mean, sorry, every lyric that I can think of, every lyric poem that we've read is spoken by whom? The author. The poet. Even if he takes on a persona, we get that person speaking in his own, I love you, I will miss you if you die, this is a cross, I'm speaking from hell, um, this is God's grandeur, I love it. It's I. It speaks from the inner person relating his feelings. And usually those feelings have to constitute one action. You can't go off because then you're in a narrative mode. It's, it's related to one feeling that the person has. That's why it's, um, it's always personally touching and why it always has a musical center because it's an expression of an inward order, a longing for beauty, order, love, those things, yeah? Narrative is you step outside of a story and you tell a story about somebody. Jane Austen tells the story about Elizabeth. Homer tells the story about Achilles, right? Um, Dante tells the story about himself, right? Narrative means a person is, is going beyond himself to let another person speak in their voice, okay? Drama is a person speaking in his own voice. If you watch a Shakespeare play, nobody's narrator, the characters are speaking in their own. So at one extreme you have lyric, and the other extreme you have drama. Right? And the mixture of the two of them is narrative. Somebody taking on the voice of another. Lyric, drama, 
a mixed mode narrative. That's from Plato. Remember that when we've watched movies together, I've said that listen to the music because the music is in one sense a diegetic voice. It's diegesis. It's expressing the emotions that are behind the whole scene. So even while we're watching a movie and it's not presented in a first person and you know somebody's lamenting the loss of his beloved or something, the judge, whatever it is, or departures. Remember the oboe or the cello was played over, it was just haunting, beautiful music. That music is an expression of the internal spirit of that action. We know, we, so we have an audible, oral experience of some spirit, sadness, joy. If you remember the opening pages or the opening scenes of uh, Sound of Music, you know, Julia Roberts or what, Drew, Julia Anders or whatever her name was. Remember going out in that mountain scene and throwing arms? It was just joyful. You, you can remember movies where there was mourning or, or Henry V, if you've seen the, the TV, after the battle, what's the Te Deum? I think they play the Te Deum music. It's just, it's, it's um, funereal. It's just the music you hear at a funeral. It's sad and mournful. Are you following? In the same way that music offers a diegetic element, an, an image of something inward that allow, helps us to feel something while we're watching something take place, the setting can do the same thing. Sunrise is a moment of joy. It's renewal. Sunset is often an experience of loss, things going down. High noon sometimes is too glaring. It's like it's almost too much to see. It's too bright. And you see poets using these things all the time because that's part of the poetic tradition. Let me stop. Is that clear? Clear? Go ahead. No, I, I, so, I see, think go. I understand. I don't remember the names, though. Diegesis. D-I-E-G-E-S-I-S, diegesis. Mimesis, mimetic, imitation. Now, the reason, the reason I want to just mention these now is because we're going to go to two scenes after the quarter deck. One of them is going to be called sunset. The other is dusk. Why? You know, people can read those and think nothing of them. They're at sunset at dusk. So what? But remember, very often whatever's going on outside the action is an image of what's going on inwardly. We have to read. We have to hear. When, here, at Mass, why in the world do they play music? And the music should change at different times of the Mass, no? To reflect? And I'm assuming that all of you have had the experience in Mass of wishing they would have played another song or did it differently or that the music was out of tune. No? Is everybody following? Music is an expression of something inward. And the same is true of setting, things like that, okay? So remember in, um, this thing about reading. Remember that what Melville is doing is a little bit like what Dante did in the Commedia. There's two Ishmaels, right? There's Ishmael the journeyer, 
the man who goes on this journey, and there's the um, poet who comes back to give us this message. If he's a Jonah figure, as I'm arguing he is, he has something important to tell us. Well, to go back to what you were asking earlier, uh, to me, uh, it's like in the epic poems where there are things that the poet tells us that he would not have been there with. Right, right, right. He has a knowledge of well, yeah, I'm so glad you... Um, thanks, Anne, for that. Everybody's following, yeah? Homer invokes the goddess, Calliope. Remember, he says, sing, goddess. So, and, and modern critics are going to do everything they can, or writers are going to do everything they can to avoid that. Because what, what Homer's acknowledging is that there's a divine order that knows things he doesn't. He can't tell them. Here, he can't tell them without a word. The logos. The logos. That's a divine word, a divinely sung, and it's sung, it's in harmony. Why? Because there's nothing of the divine order that isn't in harmony. All early poems, the epics, are all hexameter lines. They're all measured music. Sing, goddess, the anger of Peleus' son. Sing, god, um, Odysseus on his homecoming. Sing, god, Aeneas, um, the fugitive from his home, trying to find a home. All of those stories are told through a divine help, a source of inspiration. They can only be told because God's help men to see something they can't see by themselves. In the modern world, it's, you, they, they try to get around, I, it's too big a problem, but, but yes, just so you see that, because in that sense, Melville is in some, ones, in some sense carrying an epic tradition forward. It's an epic about America. Um, it's not just a novel. So the, the, the point I wanted to make here, there are two Ishmaels, right? There's the journey, or the guy who has the journey, and the man who comes back to describe the journey. Now, just for example, where did the cetology episode take place on the journey? Remember, just before he ships out, he gives us that long chapter where he classified. Most people go to sleep reading. I mean, they just read past it. Because it's just a dry description classifying the different kinds of whales. And at the end he says, God keep me from completing anything because it's partly a satire of the scientific mind that thinks if they classify something, they've got it. I hope that's clear. Because Melville's not just quarreling with religion, he's quarreling with the scientific systems belief at his time. If a science can classify it, he's got it, he knows it. So he goes to all, it's a satire. He goes to all this length to describe these whales. And at the very end he says, God keep me from finishing anything. I can't. Where did that take place on the journey? Before the quarter deck. No. It took place during the journey. It took place after the journey or, or out of time. Go ahead, Chuck. Can you flesh that out? Well, it's... it's Wait, hold on. To, wait. To, so in terms of the sequence of the plot, as it's presented, in the sequence of the plot, it comes before the quarterdeck. But Chuck, your point. But it's not set on the quarterdeck or even on the ship. It's after the fact. It's during this telling of this whole story. So it's, it's apart from the events. Right. Is everybody following? Because it's a reflection on the journey. Now here's the major question we have got to be asking ourselves in reading this. As readers, he took this journey. If he had not survived the end, let's say, Let's say the ending, he survived, and maybe others did, but without the miraculous way it takes place, we've got to get there. But 
it's miraculous. Lots of modern critics will say nihilism, pointless, um, inscrutable, can't make anything of it. If he had survived and the ending had not been miraculous, would he have told the story in the same way? Would he have brought the same spirit? Is, did something happen in the way that catastrophe took place that changed the spirit of Ishmael and the way he would tell this story? Would he bring reflections to it? Would he, would he see things differently from the way he did going out? You all know, I'm assuming, if you were to go back and tell the story of your life as an 18 year old from 15 to 20, 15 to 25, would, would the person telling that story bring the same spirit to the spirit in which you lived those years between 15 and 25? Or would you bring something different to it because of your age right now? The way you see things, your heart, your mind. Is that clear? So one of the things we have to ask ourselves, and this is the question I've been asking since Elliot or somewhere, remember the apophatic? It, um, it's, it's, um, it's a place we can't identify. When, and I've asked this question again and again. When you take communion and you go, you leave and you're out in the parking lot, where are you? Can you identify that space, that apophatic? Is everybody clear? I don't want to be going too fast here. The apophatic is that which we can't always identify in, time, in terms of time and space. We take the Eucharist, we've received Christ, we're somewhere in his kingdom, we're on the way to the car. Where are we? Where is Ishmael when he does the cytology? What's the spirit that he brings to these events? Does that exactly capture the spirit that he had when he was first experiencing them? No, because he's changed. Are we reading well? Are we aware of the difference? Are we asking these questions? Is everybody following? So he's locating us, he's locating us in time and space. This happened, this happened, this. It's empirically true, you can't deny it. He shipped out, he was on the Pequod, he went down, all these things happened, right? Empirically they're true. But there was also another plane of reality that was involved even if he didn't see it. So he's bringing a very different spirit to the way he recounts events than he would have if he were telling the story as they unfolded, say. So how are we, yeah, Anne, go ahead. Uh, and I may be trying to read too much into it, but in chapter 23, the chapter ends with it saying, up from the spray of thy ocean perishing, straight up leaps thy apotheosis, or apotheosis. Yeah, apotheosis. And, and I want, you know, knowing what happens at the end, if that was a foreshadowing of that, or if I just over... If I just read too much into that. Up for, um, it's right at the end. Of right, the right. End. No, yeah. I've got it. And I, without going into it too, if it were, in my book it's 147, but it's the end of 23. For worm like then, oh, who would crave and crawl to land? Because remember, they're shipping out, and the danger is the wind is pushing them towards shore as they go out. Take heart, take heart, O Bulkington, bear thee grimly demigod, up from the spray of thy ocean, perishing straight up, leap thy apotheosis. By the way, we keep getting hints. This is one of them. 
when he's describing the mates, we get another one up, Pip, who's going to be a major figure. And at one point, when he's describing Queequeg, he, he expresses sorrow because he's dead and he's lost him. That's in the opening chapters. I can't remember the chapter, but we're constantly getting hints that something happened. And here we're getting another. I don't think you can read too much in. There's, there's so often a foreshadowing of what's to come. Um, he cares because he carries it with him. He's, you know, he's lost. And Suzanne's comment, I really enjoyed it on our way home last. She said, I really enjoy Stubb. And she was talking about the dinner scene. I enjoy Stubb. I enjoy it, you know. And she was reading the scene today with Starbuck after the quarterdeck. She said, I really like him. And she said that knowing he's going to go down. The thing to underline here, I, I'm glad to take a second. All of these people are good. That whole ship is going down. And we've got to face that at some point. It's not selective. It's not selective at all. The whole ship is going to accept Ishmael. Why did he survive? And why didn't these other men who were good survive? Okay, major question. Um, remember, Ishmael is an outcast speaking presumably for some of us who may be outcasts as well. We may feel that we're slightly outside of our world as we live it. As a poet, he's helping us to see something hard for us to see in a time of change when we don't fit in and the work speak, the language of our culture, the work place, the language people use there, it becomes mechanical. When we don't fit in in the work speak of our culture, the words programmed into our consciousness from the world around us are not adequate to express our own minds and hearts. That language won't do it. What words or word is Ishmael bringing back to us to help us see and feel more completely our life? Is it despair? Should we kill ourselves? Or is it something else? What is, what is Melville through Ishmael helping us to see and feel about our world? Because remember, that's what the poet does. He's trying to help relate us to a world from which we partly get alienated. There's something wrong with the world and we can't always express it. What is it? Okay. Okay, let's, I want to um, go to the quarter deck. Any, any questions before we, we go to the text? I want to get to the quarter deck because it's here where everything turns. Any questions about the questions I just asked? Or comments? By the way, if I could ask a favor, those of you who are online, because I, I so terribly miss you guys, Melody, more you than anybody, because you're away always, but, um, but I, I would be so grateful um, if all of you would just take a few minutes, because you're not a, directly a part of this as, as much as people physically, and offer me your thoughts or questions or responses to the section that we're reading because it's so pivotal to the whole work. If you could just take a few minutes, each of you, I'd really be glad to hear from you, honestly. 
No questions here from you guys? Okay, quarter deck. Let's take this on. You know that they've gone out to sea, and you know that um, Stubb has already experienced Ahab. Remember that he wanted to go up and tell him to stop thumping around so he could sleep. And Ahab almost takes him apart. So we've had a glimpse of Ahab, but, but got no hint of what we're about to face now. In the quarter deck, he calls every, all the crew together. This is um, chapter 36. In my books, it's page 205, but chapter 36. And he does what a captain should do. So men, what do you do when you see a whale? And all the men cry out. It's automatic. I mean, watch out immediately. He appeals to what's automatic. They're going to know the answer to that. That's why they're there. So he's appealing to everybody, except all the men start looking at each other because they feel some strange intensity that they're responding with this intensity that they can't explain because these are just the kind of questions any captain would ask. What do you do when you cry out, sing out? Um, and what next? Lower away after him. What in tune you pull to? A dead whale or a stove book? That is, they're going to they're gonna sing in harmony. Either they're going to kill this whale or they're going to suffer a crash boat, a stove boat, it's caved in boat. It's like men going into battle in, the, in, a, in an honorary part of the army, you know, special forces where um, leave no man behind. We're going to either bring him back or die. They're that committed. Um, and then he asks for a, a coin, the, the um, Spanish doubloon, $16 coin, and he puts it on the mast, and then he says, um, have you all heard of this white whale on page 206? Um, he's the one he's after. It's a white whale, I said, resumed Ahab as he drew down the top maul, a white whale. Skin your eyes for him and look sharp for white water. If ye but see a bubble, sing out. All the while, Tashtigo, Dagu, Quiquig had looked on with even more intense interest and surprise. Hold on to that. The three natives looked on more intently than the other men. And at the mention of the wrinkled brow and crooked jaw, they had started as if each one was um, separately touched by some specific recollection. That's the natives, not the American men. So apparently they've had something or they've heard about him and carry some superstitious feeling. At this point, we don't know, but something arouses them. Does he fantail a little curious, sir, before he goes down, said um, the gray header. And as he a curious spout, too, Dagu, and um, he have one, two, three, ah, good many iron in him, hide, two, captain, quick, quick. So each of the harpooners has a question because apparently they can identify him from either experience or having heard it from others. And then Starbuck says, um, Captain Ahab, I've heard of Moby Dick, but he was not Moby Dick that took thy leg? Was it not him? Who told thee that, cried Ahab. And I, I, he says, it was that accursed white whale um, that um, raised me, made a poor pagging lubber of me forever and a day, then tossing both arms with measureless imprecations, he shouted out, I, I, and I'll chase him round good hope and round the horn and round the um, Norway maelstrom and round perdition's flames before I give him up. He will go to hell chasing him if he has to. And this is what you ship for men to chase that white whale 
on both sides of land, over all sides of earth, till he spouts black blood and rolls fin out. What say ye men? Will ye splice hands on it? Now I think you do look brave. All the men immediately join, except Starbuck. He's the only one that has reservations. Um, Ahab sees that and he says, Mr. Spart Starbuck, will thou not chase the white whale? Art thou not game for Moby Dick? I'm game for his crooked jaw and for the jaws of death too, Captain Ahab, if it fairly comes in the way of business we follow. But I came here to hunt whales, not my commander's vengeance. How many barrels will thy vengeance yield thee, even if thou great, um, gettest it? Captain Ahab, it will not fetch thee much in our Nantucket market. Now, the next passage is one of the most important in the um, book. But let me stop for a moment. Do we have any sense of Ahab and, and Starbuck from this just brief exchange before he gives that famous speech about the pasteboard mask and striking through things? What's, what's our sense at this point of both Ahab and Starbuck just from this initial exchange? Right. 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 Anything else? We don't know if Starbuck's been a mate of Ahab's, yeah, but he's a mate here. Yes, he seems possessed. That's when he's starting to show that he's possessed, and Starbuck seems to be the only one that sees it. Yet Ishmael does seem to yeah. stand back and see things happen before he dies. Yeah. Yeah. Even Ishmael's going. I want to read it. Even Ishmael's taken over. Um, this may be a terrible simplification, but let me put it out. At this point, Starbucks' only interest is money. It's financial. And at this point, clearly, Ahab's interest is spiritual. Is there something, is there something Starbucks does not see? Well, you, Starbucks says that the whale is an animal. He doesn't look at him as something that's plotted against him. Right. Right. And I think it says that Starbucks has a wife and a son, so... I think he's thinking that you're returning to them rather than... Um, okay, let me, yeah, let, me, let me read further and then I want to come back to this for a moment because there's a lot going on here. Go down, a, go down a couple of paragraphs. He smites his chest, whispered Stubb. What's that for me? Thinks it rings most vast but hollow. <laughs> I mean, to go to your point, you know, there are these foreshadowings everywhere. I mean... Vengeance on a dumb brute, cried Starbuck, that simply smote thee from blindest instinct. Madness, to be enraged with a dumb thing, Captain Ahab seems blasphemous. Harky again, the little lower layer. All visible, this is one of the most important passages in the whole of the epic, because it, it shows that Ahab stands in a different way to the universe from the way Starbuck does, okay? Because remember, hold on, remember, just for a second. Some of the major Protestant doctrines, one is inefficacy of good works. 
Nature is completely fallen. Man's corrupted. He can do nothing good. The Catholic does not believe that. The Catholic believes man is essentially good. He was made good. He's wounded. He's overcome by concupiscence, but he is not essentially bad or depraved. The Protestant doesn't. He believes man's... The, the consequences of the fall were complete. He's depraved. So the inefficacy of good works. Good works won't help you. It's only the grace of God. One, predestination. All men are predestined by God before they're born. Some men are predestined to damnation. That means before they're even born, they're committed to evil. Before they've performed an act. Okay. Another one is the elevation of the private will. That's Luther. Um, that it's the private experience a man has of God that most matters, not the conventional experience of people in a church. So the private will is elevated above, and sometimes that, that elevation can have the effect of magnifying a person's pride. It can, it can, can go through the roof. There's no way to convince that person to do something other than he's doing because in his pride he thinks that whatever he sees is right. So those are some of the most important doctrines coming out of the Reformation. Okay? The innate depravity. Calvin believed that the body was depraved. He looked down at the body as something dirty. Predestination. Um, the inefficacy of good works. And the tendency to elevate a person's private faith that has the effect of magnifying their own personal will. Ahab was formed under those doctrines. So all of these men were, they're all Protestants. This is the New England culture we saw, except for the natives. They belong to other countries, all of them. So this is a Protestant world, it's a Protestant venture, we saw that. Remember Pelag and Bildad, um, um, Bildad reading from the Bible, lay up, lay not your treasures up in earth. And they're cheating um, Ishmael when they go out. Um, and, and remember Ishmael's description that they were men of vengeance. They went to attack nature, to exploit it, to get out of it what they could. If nature is corrupt, why not? The Catholic world is, is man is inherently good. There's a sacramental character in nature. God made him good. All of, those, all of those Catholic doctrines are turned on their head here. Okay? So Ahab was raised in that culture believing that he was predestined, that he had no say in the matter, that what happened was decreed, he had no part in it, and the problem that that raises for him, if some men are predestined to damnation because they're evil, where did they get that evil from? Because God has a part in creating the human, the immortal soul. Does God himself share in some evil? Is, the, is everybody following? Is there some malice behind everything that causes everything so that it even would have caused the whale to do what it did? Because if all things have their source there, that all things are determined by God, then all these things were, were ordained. There's also a prophecy. Right. Right. Is that superstition or is that predestination? Where's the yeah, line? Yeah, good question, yeah. Is everybody following? So before we go any further, just remember that these are the things that formed Ahab's character. What we're seeing is the natural fruit, the product of that. A man being so outraged 
that he had no will in the matter and that what happened seems to be the effect of some divine malice some evil in God Bob go ahead you've got a question Right. That's his thing. Where does his predestination come in? Other than now I'm thinking that way, I become I I grow up or I change or I'm influenced to to seek this one path because that's where I'm right. focusing. Right. But that, how how does that become predestined? It's predestined to that object, but it's not well see I I disagree with that. He 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 can change his mind. If he wanted to at any time, Ahab doesn't have to stick to that. Okay, wait, before you go any farther, remember one of the points that I made earlier is um, where that came from was Calvin. Hold on just for a second. That was a dogma, a doctrine that came out of the Reformation. That's fundamental to Calvin's thought. So the people who, who took the position that the Catholic Church is um, full of corruptions that it's the Antichrist, it's gone bad, we've got to purify this church, and we're gonna do it in the direction largely of Calvin and Luther. I mean, they, they were the major thinkers. Calvin believed in predestination, that was a major part of his doctrine. So to your point, lots of people grew up believing that. I mean, that's all you can say about it. The same way Islamic people or Muslims would grow up believing certain things in their country, or Catholics in theirs. So we can't question, I mean, you, I've got to, you already know my own feelings about it, but what we're being, what we're being allowed to experience is, is a culture who actually grows up experiencing that and what it does to them. The point I want to make here is Ahab's, his whole response is framed in terms which we can understand because we know their source. It goes back to Calvin, Luther, all these men are forced. Ahab's, um, rebelling against them because he's outraged to think that anybody could do this to him in these ways. So he's speaking within, within a framework. Bob, if you can wait, just be patient. Leave it there because one of the questions that we're going to ask later as we move along is, does Ishmael get free of it? Because here he's, he's going to enlist in the question. He's going to say, I was the loudest one there. He took that position. But as we go along, we're going to see Ishmael going through a number of conversions. That is, he leaves that. Ahab never does. He will take the ship down because of these. So we're, we're in a culture in which people are raised this way. And I've said it before. In the New England culture that we're watching, um, people have become inured to these. They know, they're no longer acting on the basis of those doctrines. They care more about making money. They still go to church, they're Protestants. So they've accepted those dogmas even though they don't strictly believe in them anymore. That's what we saw in the beginning. Everybody's, we saw it. I mean, they're self-centered, they're greedy, they're self-serving, they're isolated. We saw all the effects of that in the beginning. Now we're going out to sea and we're gonna, we're gonna unlock, we're gonna open up the metaphysical grounds of what we're seeing in the culture. Is that clear? That's why the sea is so, so important as an enemy and why the land is, the city. Melville or Ahab has been raised by this. So the, the position that he's taking right now 
is one that has been formed in him and he's expressing his outrage at it. Okay? So he says to Starbuck, who's reluctant to join him, all visible objects, man, are but pasteboard masks. This is Protestant. It's Catholic. God created the world. God is visible everywhere in it. Okay? We're, we're on the same ground there. I hope that everybody's... Um, we're all made in God's image. Christ is present in the whole world. Is that the way we see it? We should see it that way. Do Protestants see it that way? No, they don't. Because the world is corrupt. It was completely ruined by the fall. But the principle is the same. All visible objects matter but pasteboard masks. But in each event, in the living act, the undoubted deed, there some unknown but still reasoning thing puts forth the, mold, the moldings of its features from behind the unreasoning mask. If man will strike, strike through the mask. How can the prisoner reach outside except by thrusting through the wall? Nobody is going to do this to me. They're going to answer for it. Yeah? And right now he's saying, no matter, even if it's something godly, that's the source of all these things in the world. How can the prisoner reach outside except by thrusting through the wall? To me, the white whale is that wall shoved near to me. Sometimes I think there's not beyond, but tis enough. He tasks me, he heaps me. I see in him outrageous strength with an inscrutable mal malice sinewing in it. That inscrutable thing is chiefly what I hate and be the white whale agent or be the white whale principle. That is, whether it's God himself or some means by which God is expressing himself, whether it's the agent or, in, or principal, it doesn't matter. He's going to, he's saying to this thing, no, you can't do this. I'd strike the sun if it insulted me, for could the sun do that, then I could do the other, since there is ever sort of fair play herein, jealously presiding over all creation, but not my master man is even that fair play. Who's over me? Truth has no confines. Anybody want to comment on Ahab? What's how you see him? How um, Melville are presenting him? You know that at this point, Starbucks not going to go along. Well, he's he's, he's going to go along, but resign. But it, but I just any questions about Ahab or any thoughts about what's driving him and um, what what how you look at him as a character, Mary? Yeah. Did you say sport? Sport. It's a sport, you know. It's more than a sport. This is his life. Right, but uh, Starbuck is... Okay, think about the Indians and the buffalo. And they were hunting the bison or the buffalo. They did it to eat. But then man, other men came along and did it for sport. And then the Indian maybe wouldn't go along with that. I wouldn't go along with it for sport. Uh, but I would go along with it for food, at least I think. I wouldn't want to skin one, but <laughs> anyway, I think that's what's going on here is Starbuck is only taking from nature what they need or what they can use, whereas I, I, that's just how I see it. Yeah. 
the, the has a little more moral conscience to it, and he's almost not afraid to say. Yeah, it. I want to come back to him. If you know, I want to, I want to pick up what you're saying. Can anybody say anything positive on Ahab's behalf? Uh, back to her, Mary's. Go ahead. I think I think prior to losing his leg, he was a very proud and very pride captain of the ship, and, and ran it appropriately. Yeah. Yes. Once he lost his leg, then the vengeance came into play. Yeah. Which made a big change into him. So it was no longer I'm going to run the ship the way it should be for profit and whatever. Right. And, and even right. the people that own the ship, right. he's turning his back against them. He's stealing their ship and doing whatever he wants. He's not turning his back, he's using them all. Well, They're a part of a machine for him. He's got, even his own terms, you know, that I've mastered them. I've got control of them now. It bothers him that he doesn't bring Starbuck completely under his control at, at first, but. I think it's so bad, his, uh, you know, his vengeance, that that is the only thing he thinks about. He's putting that as his God. That's his God. Yeah. His God is finding this whale, and, yeah. you know, that's, that's all he can think of. Yep. You asked if there's something positive. Yeah, I do. Go ahead, Chuck. Well, it's. Can you all hear him? Wait, Chuck, hold on. Can you all hear him? No. Yes. Chuck, can you speak? It's the. It, can you speak? Uh, sorry. Can you do what you can to speak up? Oh, that's about as loud as I can speak. Okay, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I'm just saying he's claiming agency. He's not passive. He doesn't give in to what's been dealt to him. Yes. It's, it's, it's activity as opposed to passivity. So if you want to find any bright, yeah, yeah, that's a weak one, but it's there. Yeah. Anybody else on anything positive in here? Alexis, yeah. I, I mean, I think his pride and vengeance is born out of um, this feeling of powerlessness and frustration. And so he's really, as a small man, taking on vengeance against Moby Dick, which to him represents this malicious god that leaves him no choice in the matter. Right. He's like the ult, you know, rebel. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. um, because his, his sense of justice is, has been so wounded, yep. there is something at the heart, you know, his sense of justice. Yeah. I don't want to lose that if everybody can hold on for a moment. We've looked at tragic heroes before. We've done Shakespeare, Achilles. Um, most epic heroes have a tragic aspect to them. Almost every tragic hero has something noble. Oedipus was a king. All, all, the, all the heroes of the ancient world were kings. Almost all of Shakespeare's um, tragic heroes are kings. Not all of them, but a, a good number. Because he knew that with power came an increase in pride. But generally speaking, he does not pick a corrupted person as the hero of a tragedy. He picks somebody who's noble because our tragic feelings are going to be awakened more when we see a noble man fall. Right? If a guy was already bad and he fell, we wouldn't feel much for him. But if we watch a guy who's really good fall, we're going to regret it. There's a real nobility to Ahab. He's angry that he has no say in this stuff because he's... How, let me put it to you. How would you guys feel? I'm saying this really honestly. Anybody can take this up. How would you feel if you grow up being told you were predestined to be damned and you had no choice in the matter? I'm not kidding. Grow up that way. Go through high school that way. How would you feel? And if you had a noble heart and a strong sense of justice, and I'm assuming some of you do because I, my sense of you, 
I certainly do. What would happen if, if somebody did something to you that left you feeling, I did not deserve that? Quietly let it go? Fight. Sorry? Suicide. No, or, or, sorry? Fight. Yeah, or fight. He's tenacious. Yeah, I mean, if, certainly, I mean, I, I mean, I'm a little bit reluctant to speak because I, I mean, Christ puts us on a cross and places us in a very different place. But I think we're facing evil. If we're facing some opposition that's threatening some evil, most of us would fight. We'd say, no, you can't do that. We say that to our children. We say it to our spouses sometimes. So Ahab, remember that he's dealing with something noble because he's dealing with the highest things. In his beliefs, God determines everything. He's going to use the image later of being on rails. He's set. This has been predestined, determined. If you're a man who has any nobility at all or any love of your humanness and you've been raised in a system like that, what would your response be? By the way, I do not want to enable, I mean, I don't want to, but I am saying it's really important because critics will just do away with him because he's so proud. Remember, part of what's at issue here is that something noble has been wounded badly and he's angry at it. That's the natural response. But here's the point, I, and I made it last week. Remember, in every other epic, in every other great work of literature, the nemesis is always a human being. It's like you're on a par. Achilles can fight Hector, they're both humans. Odysseus can fight the suitors, they're human. They have the help of the gods, the heroes. You know, the gods are helping Achilles and Odysseus. Aeneas, same. Jane Austen's Darcy is a human. He and Elizabeth go at it. I mean, pick the novel, pick a Dickens novel to Jane Austen. Doesn't matter where you go. This is the first time in the history of any recorded history that we have in which the nemesis is nature itself and the God who made it. And if nature is evil and fallen, what does that say about the God who made it? So what Ahab is going up against is something we've never seen in the battle between a hero, a tragic hero, and the nemesis. Okay? This is of a metaphysical dimension. It's going to spiritual depths. Now, here, I, I want to just read quickly, and then because I've got a couple of questions to ask before we leave. In the sunset, um, I'm going to go over these really quickly. Sunset, 37, right after the quarterdeck. And notice that it's giving stage directions like a drama. I leave a white and turbid wake, pale waters, paler cheeks, where I sail the envious billow side long swell to whelm my track, let them, but first I pass. Yonder by ever-brimming goblet's rim, the warm waves blush like wine. How could Ishmael have access? And I hope you're hearing the poetry. This is an expression of Ahab's soul. The envious billows side long swell to whelm my track, let them, but first I pass. This is an expression of the nobility of a noble soul. Who can speak poetry like that? Yonder by the ever-brimming goblet's rim, the warm waves blush like wine. 
The gold brow plums the blue. The diver's sun slow dive from noon goes down. My soul mounts up. She wearies with her. He goes on. Um, is then the crown too heavy that I wear? He's like a king. Go down below. Oh, time was when the sunrise nobly spurred me. So the sun said, Sue, no more. This lovely light, it lights me not. All loveliness is anguish to me, since I can ne'er enjoy. Gifted with a high perception, I lack the low. Enjoying power, damned, most subtly, most malignantly, damned in the midst of paradise. Good night, good night. You know, he good. Characterize Ahab here. The next page. What I've dared, I've willed. And what I've willed, I'll do. They think me mad. Starbuck does. But I'm demonic, demoniac. I am madness, maddened. That wild madness that's only come to comprehend itself. The prophecy was that I should be dismembered, and I, I lost this leg. I now prophesy that I will dismember my dismemberer. Now then, be the prophet and the fuller one. That's more than um, ye, ye great gods ever were. Go down, I have no longer gun to reach ye. Come, Ahab's compliments to ye. Come and see if ye can swerve me. Swerve me, ye cannot swerve me. Hell, she swerve yourself. Man has ye there. That is affirming free will. Say what you will, I'm going to act against this. Um, the path to my fixed purpose is laid with iron rails whereon my soul is groomed to run. Now before we leave Ahab and the Cordetic, I remember. Go back to the end of the Ahab. You remember how it ends? After he gets everybody's assent, he asks the harpooners to come up to get the, the wine and pour it in chalices. And he describes them like chalices and even alludes to the Pope and looks at them as if they were bishops. Okay? Hold on now, look. Just go down. Fill up the, um, the, the inverted... Um, parts of the, the um, harpoons. At the very end, they come, and notice, it's the three harpooners, not the mates. He says, down lances, and now ye mates, I do appoint ye. So what's happening in this scene? I do appoint ye three cupbearers to my pagan kinsmen there, ye three most honorable gentlemen and noblemen, my valiant harpooners, disdain the task? What, when the great Pope washes the feet of beggars using his tiara for ewer? If, if the Pope is going to do how can you avoid doing this? If the Pope can do that, why can't we do this? Um, oh, my sweet cardinals, your own condescension, that shall bend ye to it. I do not order ye, ye will it. Cut your sizings and draw the poles, ye harpoonies. He's not ordering them anymore, they're doing it. Go down at the end. Now three to three ye stand, commend the murderous chalices. Bestow them ye who are now made parties to this indissoluble league. Ha, Starbuck. But the deed is done. Yon ratifying sun now waits to sit upon it. Drink ye harpooners, drink and swear. Ye men that man the um, deathful whalebolts bow. Death to Moby Dick. God hunt us all if we do not hunt Moby Dick to his death. And remember he says in the sunset at the end, now then, be the prophet and the fulfiller one. That's more than ye, ye great gods ever were. Characterize Ahab and this scene. What's he doing to help 
seize control over this group. Um, Go ahead, Chuck. Well, he's he's creating a sacrament. So? <laughs> he's imbuing it with a purpose beyond beyond them and beyond himself. Say that again. He's imbuing that, that whole enterprise with a purpose uh, beyond himself and beyond them. Yeah. Something greater than all of them. Yeah. Did you use the word impute, imputing? Did I understand? Imbuing, imbuing, okay. Yeah. Alexi, go ahead. I noticed that here, the end of quarter deck and the, be the beginning of sunset, and just right here, the space of my hand, he is characterized as priest, prophet, and king. <laughs> priest, prophet, and king. So priest, when he administers the mm -hmm. drink. Mm -hmm. Prophet, where he says, well, you just read it, right. and also... The prophecy was I should be dismembered, and I now prophesy I will dismember the dismembered. And then King with the crown with the nail of cross, of the cross in it that's so heavy on his head yeah. in sunset. In your recollection, can you recall anybody of whom you could say, um, now then be the prophet and the fulfiller one? Right. Who is that? Right? It's Christ. Yeah. Yeah? He was the prophet and the priest and the victim. Um, the prophet and the fulfiller. He fulfilled it. Um, anybody else on this scene? I want to come back to the question about Starbuck, but does everybody see that what's going on here is a ritual? He's, he's made this a ritual to formalize it, to dignify it, and, and as Chuck said, in the way that he does it, he imbues a good word. He, he confers on the nature of it something of the sacred by virtue of the fact that it's a ritual and he speaks about it in terms relating to the hierarchy of the church. Cardinals, the Pope. Um, so he, sorry, go ahead, Bob. He's, he's elevating the harpoonists. harpoonists and their job is to lift their throw a spear. Yeah. He's really elevating them to where yep. they're becoming more and more committed to, to doing this, not just to shoot away all the yeah, yeah, yeah. He's bringing them up to where they're buying into it really, really deep. Yeah. He's elevating the nature of the quest, of vengeance quest too, because remember, that's what it is. So in every way, in one respect, I mean, I, 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 I just do not want to lose sight of the nobility of this man. Because I think most moderns just wash him off, and it, that's a mistake. One of the things America has lost is a tragic view. We, we, we've lost a sense of the nobility of the human being. Ahab is doing everything, or, Ish, or Melville, sorry, is doing everything he can to show the nobility of the human being and how inhuman these doctrines are, what they do to a man. And in defiance of those doctrines, Ahab's doing everything we've been describing. He's, he's elevating this quest venture to a, um, a divine ritual that has a divine aspect to it. Um, and he does it at sunset, and why? And by the way, Ishmael, wait, Dusk, Starbuck, my soul is more than matched, she's overmanned, and by a madman, insufferable sting. He can't stop him. 
Peace, ye revelers, set the watch, O life, tis in an hour like this, with soul beat down and held to knowledge, as wild, untutored things are forced to feed, O life, tis now that I do feel the latent horror in thee, but tis not me, that horror's out of me, and with the soft feeling of the human in me, yet will I try to fight ye, ye grim phantom futures, stand by me, hold me, bind me, O ye blessed influences. So, that's at dusk. Why sunset and dusk? We are getting out of here at 8.30. I made a promise, Mary. <laughs> Why sunset and dusk? And Ahab says, I'm damned. I'm damned. Since I can never, gifted with the high perception, I lack the low enjoying power, damned, most subtly and most malignantly damned in the midst of paradise. Why sunset? Why dusk? Oh, because again, they're, they're getting ready to retire for the evening. This is kind of the end of the day. This is how they just have to think of that thought. They don't have it. It was in the morning. There would be all these distractions all the way through. So now, we just took it in, sleep on it, and absorb it. So tomorrow when you get up, you're there. You know? so, the light has gone out. It's the lost right. The, the light has gone out. He's damned. This is a moment that the light has gone. Remember what I said about diegesis and music and the light's gone out. It's absolutely crucial to see this. The light's gone out. And it's dust. The light's gone out for Starbucks. The light's gone out. This is a moment when um, a, a group of people commit themselves to what will be a moment of perdition. I mean, it, the, light's, the light has gone out. It says, so you see what I'm talking about with sunset, the way a, a poet will... The light's gone out here. He's damned. It's absolutely crucial to see that in the quarterdeck scene, the whole novel turns, and the consequence of it is the light's gone out. And we're going to learn very quickly, Ishmael's going to say, I was the one who was the loudest of all of them. Okay? Also, now, before we. Last sure. drink, it could be also like Last Supper, which is evening time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, except here it's reverie. They're all getting drunk and drinking. Um, so here's my question before we leave um, What's Fadala's role? I, I hope everybody see. Remember, Fadala is one of the Eastern sort of evil spirits that Ahab sneaks on board. He's an image of those Eastern mysticism. You know that most of the early heresies from the church came out of the East. The East tends to be run by tyrannies and despotisms and evil religious and priest, priestly classes. And Fadala belongs to that class. He's Eastern. He, he believes in magic and power. Why does Ahab have this guy? Hold on to it. Because we know from this, this scene, if we didn't know it before, there's a religious aspect to Ahab's quest. It's essentially to break through that mask to this divine malice. So it's deeply religious. It's a response to this Protestant world in which he was raised. What's Fadala's role in this? What is he image? If the sunset is an image of the light going out in Ahab, what is Fadala? Here's the question I want to end on, and we've only got two minutes because I'm holding myself to... Um... um What's our response to 
Starbucks. Why is he the only man to hold out? What does that say about him? And what does it say about the rest of the crew? Are you guys following how deep this story I just remember is? I last week you mentioned yeah. the five uh, Remember when they were boarding the five dusky Carrick shadows? Right. And you, and you chuckled about it and you said, remember that. And then I get to that chapter and I'm like, wait, wait, they're on board, they're on board. And I'm like, is that real? Are they really there? Was that a match? Yeah. No, they're there. Yeah. But it, it was in the boat and the whole thing. Right. Ishmael's response to that was like, it was beautiful. It's, and it's interesting that they were described as shadows. Yeah, and the way you, know, you describe the whole East and the way they talk about, oh, yeah, yeah. The, they consider it to be one of the original states of man. Yeah. After the garden and the fall and everything, it was really pretty incredible. Quickly, because I'm holding myself to this. <laughs> what, what, why is Starbuck the only man to hold out? And what does it say about the crew? And what does it say about him? Both. working for the company when he's on the ship. He's still following the captain, but he's resisting because the captain's going against all those things. And he wants to go home to his family. He has courage and principle. Uh, Ahab, he, he got married and left on his wedding night, I think it was, and out to sea for about <laughs> three years before he comes back and he says, my whole life has been out here. Yeah, yeah. You know, so yeah. there's a big difference between those two. Yeah. But now here's Starbuck on the ship that all the other people are anxious to get the whale for the money and for that little gold, gold coin. So it's, he's got a big resistance. So consequently, he yeah. goes along. Doc, why is Starbuck the only one who holds out? What's your thoughts on this? Well, I think he is. He's, he's a moral man. Um, and he sees the evil that... Maybe he doesn't see it as evil, I don't know. Um, but he sees the wrong in what Ahab is doing. Mm -hmm. um, I don't, he doesn't have the strength to fight him. He's yeah, the first officer, so he has the greatest authority compared to the rest of them. And Stubb is just indifferent. He, he agrees that it's evil, but he's too, he's too passive and indifferent. And Flask is just not capable. Yeah. So it's up to Starbuck to be the dissenting voice. When I asked Doc earlier, when you talked about it earlier, I, I, I was hoping to get, but she, her first response is because he's the only one reflective enough to resist. He, he's the only thoughtful and he's got a moral standard. What is it, wait, so it, just think about that for a minute. He's the first mate, he's the most reflective, he's the most moral, okay, of all the people, certainly the harpooners. The harpooners are not reflective men. Everything they do is instinctive. Stub, Stubb's not reflective, neither is Flask. Starbuck is. So here's my question, and I'm not going to answer it tonight. I'm, I don't want to take any time. What does it say about Starbuck that he does not resist Ahab? And let me leave it there. Remember what I said earlier? We've said it, we've seen it now. Once a, a church turns away from the sacraments, it turns away from a spiritual life, a divine life, in which God is actively doing something spiritually with each of us. Once man turns away from that spiritual life, the sacraments, 
The faith descends into a moral code, a code of respectability, manners, morality. It's a moral code. What happens when a man turns away from the sacraments and enters into a moral code when he has to face spiritual evil? Let me just leave it there. Okay? We'll pick up here. The answer lies there. What, when you guys read ahead, when you guys, as you read ahead, yes. um, watch Ishmael, what he does, and pay attention to the GAMs. Yes. The GAMs are the meetings, the, meetings the GAMs, G-A-M-S, GAMs. It's when ships at sea meet and they exchange news. Uh, they, seem, the they seem like they're random. Put them together. What do we learn about this quest for Moby Dick from all the GAMs? Okay. Oh, I love the albatross, where the captives try to fix up the tin horn. Have you seen the white whale? He picks up the tin horn to answer, and it falls into the sea. It gets swept away. 